Hey, what's up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, and it's the Centered from Reality podcast. It is Friday. I'm not going to sing Rebecca Black. I know I've thought about it before, but it is Friday. We got to get down on Friday. Weekend's coming. Here we got, looks like a storm coming in again, and uh, it's actually kind of a beautiful day. So anyways, I hope you're taking care of yourself. Tonight I'm trying out some new recipes, so pretty wild Friday night for me over here. But I want to talk about a few different things today. I want to touch on that spy balloon, the, the Chinese spy balloon that was spotted over Montana. It's like the size of three school buses. It's kind of caused a small diplomatic issue between the United States and China, but I also want to talk about why I'm not that concerned about it. I think mutual surveillance happens all the time, and it's better than a war. So I'll get into that later. I also want to talk about European populism and how a recent election in the Czech Republic for the new prime minister is actually a great sign. And then I want to kind of get into how, in general, it looks like European populism is at least struggling. And uh, we'll go through a few of the reasons why. But first, I wanted to start today with just some irritated and rather disappointed thoughts about Larry Hogan, the former governor of Maryland. He just left office, so 2022 was his last year in office. And I think he's been a great governor. Seems like a pretty decent guy. More importantly, he's been a pretty pragmatic leader. And he's been one of the ones who was willing to work with Trump during COVID, you know, in the early days when governors had a lot of control. But then at the same time, he's also been one of the governors and Republicans in general who has been able to condemn Trump. After January 6th, after all the election denialism and all that insanity, he is one of the guys who really came out and said, I think Trump is morally responsible for this. I don't like him. I wouldn't go behind him. We need to move on. And... You know, Hogan is one of these just kind of center-right guys in general. And, you know, he's, he's, he's definitely a Republican. Like, he's no Democrat by any means, but he's someone that never, I think, really got on board with Trumpism. I, I think it was someone on the bulwark. It was uh, Sarah Longwell who runs focus groups. She, she had a great point. She's like, he's actually probably closer politically to Biden than Trump. And so anyways, I should also mention that he has a really good job record in Maryland, especially because... He's a red governor in a blue state. And just a side note, I always like to take notes about those type of people who are a Republican leading a state that's the opposite party of them. You know, if you look at Vermont, you have the same phenomenon in Massachusetts for a while. To me, it actually sometimes seemed to work out pretty well. California with Schwarzenegger. Anyway, so that it's interesting. But, I mean, for God's sake, Hogan left office in 2022 with a 77% approval rating. So almost 80%. And that's pretty good. That is pretty good. So anyways, unfortunately, I'm bringing him up today, not because I want to tout all of his success and why I like him. Unfortunately, today, I want to talk about him because it looks like he's starting to go down that moral or cognitive dissonance train that so many people we call normie Republicans have done, right? You have like the never Trumpers that definitely will just never go down that train. But then you have a lot of these like normie Republicans who have like spoken out against Trump, but then they won't actually condemn him in, for 2024. And basically over this week, he has evaded the question of whether he would support Trump as the nominee in 2024. And I mean, he's a bigger guy, but I still think he'd be a good dancer. So I mean, maybe he should get out on the floor and start dancing because the amount of like dancing and twisting he did in this answer was kind of funny in a dark way for 2024. But 
he basically denied that he would support Trump because Trump won't be the nominee. But then he said he would always support the nominee. And so basically, <laughs> I mean, how do I even say this? Because like the answer was so weird, but he he said that he won't support Trump, but he also won't won't not support Trump. So yeah, he would support Trump if he's the nominee, basically. And Fox News reports here in quotes, former Maryland Governor Larry Hogan, a moderate Republican who said he is giving, in quotes, serious consideration to running for president, evaded the question when asked Thursday if he would support former President Trump if Trump wins. And he did this on the Hugh Hewitt show. Uh, so that's always a red flag to me. It's interesting that he was on there. But anyways, Hugh actually kind of pressed him on it. It was not, I, I watched a few clips of it. I didn't listen to the whole thing. I don't need that in my life, but I'll just read a few passages from it because I've now had trouble finding the video clip. But the, the, the part that's important for us here is they were talking about 2024 and who he would support. And he said, as I've said, Hugh, I don't think it's going to be Donald Trump. But, you know, we'll cross that bridge or jump off that bridge when we come to it. Then he was pressed by Hugh, and Hogan insisted that Trump will not be the nominee again. But then later he says, yeah, I just don't think he's going to be the nominee, but I'll support the nominee. It's like, dude, okay, so you're not going to support, you don't think Trump's going to be the nominee. You've condemned him, but then at the same time, also, you'll support the nominee. So he's off in la-la land here, you know. He's just really irritating me because... For the guy who's been condemning for you know condemning Trump for years, it just seems like he's evading morality here. He's off in his own moral universe because you pretty much lose all credibility when you've been condemning Trump, calling him dangerous, and then you still say you vote for him. And we've seen other people like this, like Mitch McConnell, William Barr, when he wasn't going around Europe trying to find stolen elections, but whatever. I mean, it just is irritating. You lose all credibility when... You condemn someone and then say, oh, but I'll still support them because they're part of my party. And, you know, we've seen Governor Sununu of New Hampshire do this as well. He's another really smart governor, quite quite a centrist in my opinion, seems well-equipped. He's called Trump crazy and dangerous, but then he also a few days ago, or maybe it's a week ago now, has said that he would back the nominee and he would back Trump if he was the nominee in 2024. I get that... I get that politics is a thing, and if you're a Republican, you probably agree with Republican principles more than the Bernie Sanders, for example. But that being said, like, there's a difference between disagreeing on politics and then saying someone's dangerous. And if you're going to say they're dangerous, then don't say you're still going to support them because it makes you look like a fool. And Sununu and Hogan are kind of disappointing here because they were the ones that I thought could maybe be some sort of bridge. Now... I will say there is something interesting in Hogan's interview. I love when he said, we'll cross that bridge or jump off that bridge when we come to it. Interesting stuff. Now, like I said earlier, it seems to me like Sununu and Hogan are actually like closer to Biden or like a centrist Democrat than they are to someone like Trump. And what I mean there is that Trump is like a far right populist who is allied with kind of an economic protectionism and populism that is really against the establishment right. And look, Larry Hogan has condemned Trump enough that Trump supporters aren't going to like him. But now he's also pissed off moderates. And a lot of us thought that, okay, he couldn't win probably, but at least he has a good lane that he can maybe show some morality here. And same with Sununu, but it seems like I don't know what their angle is here because you're not going to get any credit from anyone at this point. So it's disappointing to see, 
I'm not really surprised, to be honest, because it just seems like those days are over. But the one thing I will end with this segment on is that it seems like people like Hogan and Sununu are trying to evade the moral question. They're trying to evade morality in this instance because they keep convincing themselves that Trump is, that Trump is not going to be the nominee. Look, he might be the nominee. He might not. I'm one of the people who think uh, think he might be the nominee. I, I would If I had to bet, I would probably bet he will be unless something really changes. And these guys are just off in a completely like morally dissonated, I don't know if that's a word, they're completely isolated from reality, I guess. And they're avoiding the real question by saying, oh, Trump won't be the nominee. And the true question is, okay, if he's the nominee, then what? So disappointing, nothing surprises me anymore. At least there's a few Republicans, though they're out of office, that actually say they would not vote for Trump no matter what. So moving on, I was on a run yesterday, and I got one of those fun CNN breaking news reports or phone updates or whatever you want to call them, and it was the one about that Chinese spy balloon that was detected flying over the United States. Before we get into it, I will say that at the time of this recording, I saw that they've detected another one. This time it's flying apparently over Latin America, so fun stuff. Apparently they don't think it's coming our way this time, but still... You never really know. Anyways, I figured I would wait a good 24 hours after the lovely spy balloon to see what happened. And I must say that since there are reports of the balloon, it does seem like there's a mild diplomatic crisis brewing or on our toes or happening or whatever else you want to say. Uh, just to start, Antony Blinken, Secretary of State, has actually postponed his planned trip to China after this thing balloon was detected by the Pentagon. And The Economist writes in quotes here, Blinken was due to land in China on Sunday and was expected to meet with President Xi Jinping. I also should note, I think I forgot to say this at the top of the show, um, the balloon was spotted over Montana. And I've been doing a little more research later. And maybe there's some reason for that. Apparently there's a number of sensitive sites all in this area and in the area that the balloon was seen, it was home to an underground U.S. military intercontinental ballistic missile silo. So I don't know if that's just coincidence, but I guess if it is a spy balloon, that would be a fitting place for it to be flying, if you catch my drift. But before we continue, I can also understand why the spy plane would want to be flying over Montana. It's beautiful, expansive, epic. There might be a missile silo below the ground. Sign me up, right? And so maybe I should go from driving through Wyoming to a balloon trip over Montana. But uh, <laughs> anyways, back to the serious stuff. Of course, China has denied that this object was a spy balloon. It's claimed that the balloon was used for, in quotes, meteorological purposes. Of course, they've blown it off. I'll get into that later. But it would be kind of impressive if a Chinese meteorological uh, balloon had really gone this far off course, you know, but also you could ask like, what is a weather balloon doing in Montana from the Chinese government? The answer is that it's probably not a weather balloon. So <laughs> going into more detail, the Wall Street Journal writes here in quotes, U.S. officials on Thursday said the craft was loitering over Montana, having crossed earlier Alaska's Aleutian Islands and then into Canada. So I guess that would be the sensible route. The Pentagon scrambled jets and at one point considered shooting down the balloon, officials said, though didn't over concerns that the debris posed a risk to people on the ground. And I, I alluded to that earlier. 
there were fears that the balloon could potentially, you know, land on valuable areas. It could hurt people. And I think they just realized it wasn't worth the risk. And the Pentagon also said that the balloon was flying east at about 60,000 feet over the central U.S. And the Chinese have said, in quotes, they will continue to uh, maintain communication with the U.S. to properly handle this unexpected situation. Now, I should also note that while the Chinese claim this was a civilian vessel, the Pentagon has said that the balloon was expected to drift over the U.S. for a few more days. And according to what the military's gathered, it had a payload of surveillance equipment on it. And I've already seen people, a lot of people, from Dan Crenshaw to Kevin McCarthy say things to the effect of like, shoot it down, come on Joe, get the balloon, let's see what's in the balloon, all that type of stuff. And of course, it's never something that makes you feeling warm and fuzzy inside when you see this type of report. But I should mention that from my readings on this, because the balloon was so high, a lot of people don't think it was really any threat to public safety or anything. Now, it is technically a clear violation of our sovereignty, international law, that type of stuff. But then again, I think the calculation was made not to shoot it down because they didn't think it posed any threat to the nation, to our intelligence community, or to the public, so they decided to just let it be. And... I guess the question then goes to why would Antony Blinken decide to not go to China over this spy balloon flying over Montana, right? From my understanding, it's because diplomatic officials feel that this series of events could potentially limit what will be talked about in the meetings. It'll be too focused on this, and it might not be as productive as they were hoping. The Wall Street Journal has a quote from a high-ranking official in the Biden administration and this official says, in quotes, I think it would have significantly narrowed the agenda that we, that we would have been able to address, end quotes. And there's probably some reason to that. And while the administration is rightfully condemning what is happening, I, I, I kind of want to take a step back because, you know, some people are saying, don't shoot it down. Others are saying, come on, Biden, you're being weak. Let's just see what's happening here and get this thing out of the air. I, I think it's important to note that I don't think this is some step on the road to a conflict between the U.S. and China or anything of that sort. I think Blinken is probably canceling this trip for the political reasons that I addressed earlier. And of course, you know, the mood in the United States has definitely turned a little bit on China. So it's an easy thing to do. I, I also think that these type of events happen more than we like to admit. What I mean here is I think we need to remember that mutual surveillance has been kind of fairly common in the United States between our adversaries and ourselves for a long time. Not to say that I like the idea of a Chinese spy balloon flying over Montana, but I've seen a, some pretty convincing arguments that allowing this type of surveillance, as, as long as it's mutual, can actually prevent a conflict. David Frum has a good article that gives some examples of this. He writes in The Atlantic, for example, for nearly three quarters of a century, U.S. policy has been to welcome mutual aerial surveillance as a way to keep the peace. Back in 1955, President Dwight Eisenhower made the first proposal for an open skies international accord on such inspection systems. And just to go back as a little refresher, the Treaty on Open Skies was something that we talked about on the old podcast 
it actually was a way for kind of either democracies or adversaries to democracies to kind of keep each other in check and make sure that no one was doing anything to maybe escalate a conflict or develop weapons, whatnot. And uh, we talked about this on the old podcast because Trump, of course, pulled us out of it. It was set to expire and he pulled us out of it. Of course, that is really nothing surprising there. But the Open Skies Treaty was revived after the Cold War and it licensed countries that signed into it that they could conduct a certain number of overflights each year over foreign territory, basically. And it was ordered to build confidence in one another's peaceful intentions. So yeah, if you're flying, like, say you're a, a Russian vessel flying over the United States in, like, 1995, you probably don't want to see, like, a massive escalation of, like, arms deals or, you know, one of our bases in Alaska getting ready to send some planes over, <laughs> over the Bering Strait or something. And... Yeah, I think it was just a way to make sure countries were not doing anything suspicious or dangerous. And I should also note that I think in general, Trump was quite hostile towards intelligence sharing and mutual deals. Even during the pandemic, we cut off a lot of information to China about what was happening. Of course, they are not open, but they're an autocracy and we're a democracy. So one could argue you kind of need to treat those things different. But I should also make it clear that I guess going back to this spy plane thing here, or spy balloon, excuse me, thing here. China isn't part of Open Skies. It never was. It's not really part of any of these agreements. Remember, China kind of came to this international order a little bit later. And like I said earlier, I don't think a lot of us like the idea of it conducting actions wherever it wants to and doing this over places that could have military potential for the United States. But From does note here in quotes, and I think it's something important, that these surveillance vehicles, in quotes, send home mainly information on U.S. military capabilities and on the American economy. Also, the status of grain crops, for example. They're probably intercepting a lot of U.S. data traffic, too. Not great, but it's not like they're over here just, like, stealing everything. I think, I think they're probably doing what we do. And in my opinion, we don't need more hostility you have all these like Dan Crenshaw types who are like, let's shoot it down. It's like, I don't really think that's a great idea. Um, because I think, I think it was Eisenhower that said something like mutual surveillance is mutually reassuring. And look, like I think the Chinese would almost want us to react to this. And yeah, I mean, of course it should get out of U.S. airspace, and I know Antony Blinken has said the first step is getting this out of our airspace, but I think we need to take some, some deep breaths here and not get to the point of, like, let's just shoot this down. Let's not piss off the Chinese. This seems to me like an act of desperation or maybe aggression, but probably the first one I said. So I don't know. We'll keep this, keep this uh, being updated here over the weekend. But moving on, I want to talk about, for the rest of this, populism in Europe. Starting with the state of populism in Europe, because, you know, I, I think a lot of the American changes on the right wing to this kind of, kind of post-fascist right wing reactionary rhetoric, I think it all kind of stems from a lot of the movements we've seen in Europe for a couple decades now, and while it's still kind of growing in a lot of the Americas, it seems to be kind of on retreat in Europe, or at least not exploding like it was maybe five or ten years ago. And there's a recent election in the Czech Republic, 
that may be giving democracy as a whole and Europe in general some good news. And first, I just want to remind you guys and remind all of us that Europe has really had kind of a pretty crazy rave uh, wave. <laughs> rave would be more fun. Excuse me, not a rave. That'd be great. Uh, but a wave of kind of extreme right-wing populism and some left-wing populism as well in the last several decades. So one example, Britain leaves the EU on the back of what I would argue are fairly inaccurate promises that kind of came straight out of the populist playbook. You have guys like Nigel Farage, Boris Johnson, that appeal to emotion, tribe, grievance over facts. And I would argue now that if you pulled some of the people that voted to leave the EU in the UK, they would probably say, you know what, fuck, like I want to get back. Because there's so many articles that now compare Britain to the Italy of the Western, like Northwestern Europe. Because Britain's economy is not doing well since this. Maybe they'll bounce back, but populism, it was all kind of a lie that appealed to emotion, and it's backfired. Another one, in Sweden, a lot of far-right parties have been taking power, and actually the current government, which is center-right in Sweden, actually signed a coalition deal with a post-fascist far-right party, which I think is kind of a good summary of kind of a lot of Europe right now, is that the center-right is now reliant on far-right coalitions, in a sense, much like the GOP in the United States, is that a once more centrist or right-leaning center party is now reliant on the far right more than ever before. And then you look at Italy, another example. Giorgia Maloney, right, actually wins. <laughs> she is the leader of Italy. And while she has governed more centrist than a lot of people were thinking, she has ties to fascist sympathizers. Her early days, she was a supporter of Mussolini, Never great. The Sons of Italy are not a movement that is really fun to back. So, you know, she's another example of that. Then if you look in other places, Marine Le Pen in France, she's come at multiple times way too close for comfort to the presidency. Never actually became president, thank God. But she doesn't go away. And as the economy is getting worse, she's been able to kind of soften her image as well. And is actually quite popular now when the French are actually starting to have to consider cutting pensions. She is now kind of part of that horseshoe effect with the far left. So that has been interesting to see. She is still around, still quite popular. Her dad was a literal Nazi. So the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And, of course, then you have the Vox party in Spain. I, I know a lot of Vox people, you know, my time being in Spain. It's an interesting coalition of anti-migrants homophobia, Franco-supporting authoritarians, far-right Catholics. It, I think Vox, of all parties, actually, might be one of the most post-fascist parties on the map. Even though Franco was more of a right-wing autocrat than a pure fascist, it just seems like the Vox party is a coalition of ex in insanity that really encompasses everything. And also the Vox Party, you know, they're, they're not doing as well now as they were, but for a while in like southern Spain, parts of northern Spain, the Vox Party was doing well. So those are just a few examples. Of course, then you have Viktor Orban, who he, I mean, <laughs> Hungary is a whole other thing. I'm not even going to, I mean, I've talked enough about them. So anyways, we've seen just some of those examples I mentioned of populism growing. Haven't even talked about the Netherlands, but... It does seem that populism may be coming up against its borders, its limits, its fault lines, whatever you want to call it. Because 
like I alluded to earlier, there are some positive, promising signs coming out of the Czech Republic. So there's this guy named Petr Pavel. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I've seen it written, but I haven't actually heard it pronounced. So don't don't hate on me too much there. And uh, he just won the election for president in the Czech Republic back in late January. And he won with 58% of the vote, which was quite good. And he decimated... So, so he wins as president, right? So he's the president-elect. He decimates the former prime minister who is running against him as president, who is kind of a Trump-like figure. And this guy had name recognition, but got destroyed. And this guy was a populist, and Petr Pavel, kind of an institutionalist. And it's kind of refreshing to see. So talking about Petr Pavel for a minute, he was a former Communist Party member who, after the fall of the Soviet Union was a war hero, and became one of NATO's highest-ranking generals. And actually, I, I should note that he's actually said that Ukraine should be immediately part of NATO. I don't know if that... <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that's a whole other conversation. But like, the point is that this guy is very pro-institutions, NATO, post-World War II order, blah, blah, blah. He's also funny, or not funny, but interesting side story is that he's loved by the French. He, he, he's really popular amongst like center-left, center-right French circles. Because I guess a unit that he led in the 90s saved dozens of French soldiers from capture during a mission during the Yugoslavian Civil War breakup in 93. And I think it's The Economist, though, that sums him up the best. The article from yesterday writes, in quotes, Square-jawed and white-haired, the 61-year-old Czech looks every bit the airborne platoon leader termed uh, NATO general, then aspiring statesman. Think Eisenhower or De Gaulle, special ops variant. <laughs> I, I did look up this guy's picture, not going to lie, because I, I didn't know much about him. But basically, he does look like he's like straight out of central casting to play a heroic leader to bring glory and democracy back to his country. Has that kind of old, white, chiseled look. If you've seen the show Avenue 5, he looks like the captain on that, but a little bit classier, more of a Eastern European, Central European version of that. But anyways, like, this guy is a big deal because the Czech government has been very corrupt, and even though the Cold War ended and it's a technical democracy, it's one of those hybrid... No, it's not even a hybrid regime. It's kind of one of those flawed democracies, I guess, on that scale I was talking about. And the country has still been influenced by Russian propaganda for a long time, much like other countries in the sphere, though I would argue the war in Ukraine has kind of backfired again on Putin in this part of the world. The government prior to this election, was led by a, a guy that I would call pretty, even though he's center-right, he's pretty damn homophobic and kind of a Putin stooge. The, the former president, who is leaving now, I guess next month, is named Milos Zeman, and he was joined by the populist billionaire Andrej Babish, who was the prime minister. And Babish is an interesting guy. He's the one that actually ran against Pavel, in the presidential election last month. But anyways, Tom Nichols in The Atlantic writes here in quotes, a billionaire, Bobish uh, campaigned on the high-minded slogan, everybody steals, and vowed to run the government like a company. Nichols writes later, that should sound familiar to American voters who had to listen to cynical <laughs> bloviations from Donald Trump for many years. The article continues, Zeman then won a second term in 2018 as president, and Bobish remained prime minister until late 2021 when he left office. So you have a center-right Putin stooge as president, and the prime minister is kind of a Donald Trump-like figure, an eccentric billionaire who 
thinks that corruption exists, so why be good, basically. So a very Trumpy type of thing. And so then you get into this election, 2022, and Bobish now, who was prime minister, wants to run for president, and he runs against Pavel, our buddy here, who looks like a uh, special ops variant of Eisenhower, as the economist said. And this was kind of a big deal because Bobish was destroyed by Pavel. And a lot of people are kind of shocked by this because Bobish was prime minister, remained it for quite some time, and he had the name recognition in the country, and Pavel beat him. Like, the country had like 70-75% turnout in this presidential election, and Pavel, like I said earlier, won by almost 60%. So, I truly think, I truly think this, is that the Russian onslaught against Ukraine has kind of broken a spell throughout a lot of this part of the world. Um, a, A lot of former Soviet bloc countries have kind of gone like, damn, like we are our own identity. It's kind of been a waking up type of process, I think, for a lot of these people. And knowing you have a president who is pretty close to the Kremlin and an eccentric billionaire who is a populist, I think, I think, again, Putin's onslaught has really backfired and it's been really interesting to see. And This is an interesting story. Of course, it's a small Central European country. Poland, though Poland is siding with the West, Poland still has its corruption issues. Obviously, Viktor Orban is a nutcase. Like, nothing is perfect right now. But I guess when the political story of the EU in the past two decades has been about populace and, you know... Prior to that, the elections used to be center-left versus center-right, but then it became post-fascist right-wingers versus Marxists. Like, the marginal sides became central to elections. All of that was crazy, and so I think it really redefined politics. And there was a lot of questions about, on the continent, whether the electorates would want, like, this post-World War II establishment global centrism or would they want like a Marine Le Pen or or Babish or Viktor Orban or whatnot, right? Like who would prevail? And while we've seen Poland, Hungary, recently Italy, definitely the more post-fascist populist wins, it just seems like Mr. Babish's defeat for Pavel is really good. Because I think it was, what, last year? Maybe 2021. No, no, no. I, th- I think it was 2022. Slovenia and Bulgaria saw democracies restored to Trumpy-like figures that were very pro-Putin. And we've also seen in the United States, Brazil, other countries, we've also seen a similar backslide against populism and authoritarianism. And really quickly before we're out of here, I just wanted to talk about some of the, some of the argued reasons as why populism is going downhill, downhill in Europe. And I think it's important to take note of because if we want this world to like remain stay, safe, stable, and democratic, we need to know maybe how right-wing populism and populism in general struggles. And like I said already, the war in Ukraine is one reason because a lot of European populists, especially on the right, held Putin in really high regard. And now watching him completely explode national sentiment and destroy coalitions and completely isolate himself i think it's scared a lot of populists in europe the other reason i think is that leaving the eu 
really backfired. And a lot of other countries in the EU go, maybe maybe having this giant economic block is not the worst idea. And I think what made that even more clear was the EU funds that were given to struggling countries during the COVID pandemic and how helpful they actually were. Right? <laughs> and And the other thing, too, is that I think a lot of people actually question if populists know what they're doing. And what I mean here is that even when populists win, they don't always do what they say they're going to do, and they don't even have policies that are coherent. And Miss Maloney in Italy, right, the current, current leader of Italy, she has kind of seemed to learn that because even though she was a, you know, a Brothers of Italy fan and a Mussolini supporter, she's really stayed away from the Putin sympathy stayed away from her counterparts in like Poland and Hungary. She's kind of governed as an economic centrist in her first hundred days. She's met more with Emmanuel Macron of France and Ursula van der Leyen, sorry, van der Leyen of the European Commission. Like it seems like she is getting it. And of course things can change. But I think when you put Brexit, the war in Ukraine, COVID, and the failure of populism to solve any of economic issues related to these, I think the population goes, no. And then also you have to just remember that a lot of these right-wing populists especially are kind of assholes. Like, they're not nice people, and they kind of condone violence. And I don't know. With all the craziness in the world, maybe people don't want that. So, anyways, I'm not saying populism's over. Obviously, we had a January 6th type of event in Brazil a couple weeks ago. And obviously, we still have a lot of democratic backsliding around the world. So we, I don't think we can uh, raise our glasses yet and celebrate. But if I could have a drink, and hey, it's Friday, so I opened up a White Claw here. Uh, so cheers to that. I'm going to sip my White Claw to at least the Czech Republic doing well. So I'll take a sip here real quick. And uh, have a great rest of your week. I guess it's Friday, so have a great weekend and... You guys will find me back here on Monday, Senate from Reality Podcast. Find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, all that jazz. Thank you.